My guest today is Candice Edelen. Candice is a serial entrepreneur. She has created five companies and she is co-owner of Propel Group. She specializes right now with clients that are active in the ERP industry, but she has created businesses that are both software businesses as well as service businesses. And she will provide you with a lot of gems, great advice, and share great experience about how she sold one of her previous companies about how she decided to pivot her business to fit her lifestyle, the importance of having human-to-human interaction, the way she managed to predict the fall of the famous co-working company WeWork and the future of the ERP implementation industry. So I believe there would be a lot of things that are uh, very valuable that you as a listener will enjoy. So without further ado, let's start with Candice Edelen. Welcome to the Consulting Lifestyle Podcast. I am your host, Diogen Tirandekura. On this show, you will discover the realities, the successes and the struggles of business management and information technology consultants in the fast-moving B2B world. So stay tuned if you want to know more about what it takes to have a consulting lifestyle. Hello and uh, welcome to the Consulting Lifestyle to Candice Edelen. Candice, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. We have one thing in common with regards to uh, maybe two things in common is that we are working in the consulting world, but also in the ERP world. But uh, our conversation, I think, will go across a, a range of topics. And uh, for that, uh, Candice, can you please share like the main highlights of your career story? Sure. So I'm a bit of a serial entrepreneur. This is my fifth company, and it's oh. a sickness. <laughs> oh, there are worse sicknesses, I believe. That's true, but I think it is incurable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we started Propel Growth after I had co-founded two companies in the financial technology space. So both of them were around electronic trading and securities trading like stocks and bonds, Wall Street type of business. And then I kind of built a name for myself in those two startups. So 15 years ago, when I launched Propel Growth, I was doing more marketing consulting, not IT consulting, but actually helping companies with their marketing and sales efforts and business development. And so we've been doing that kind of consulting since 2007, Mm -hmm. and then shifted away from the financial technology space in 2018, just needed a change. And after a brief kind of interlude in commercial real estate, we discovered the ERP space and started working with quite a few different companies in the ERP consulting space, uh, like people that are doing implementation and reselling of ERP Mm -hmm. technology. Okay, that's a very rich five companies. And also, you don't have to name all of them, but you say you call founded your previous companies? Was it with the same co-founder or different? Two of them were with the same co-founder. Those companies were called IBSN. And then we actually raised venture capital with that one and built a pretty decent sized company out of it. And then the same co-founder and I started another company called Cascade that we didn't go the venture fund route that time. We went with more of a, a strategic partnership. That one didn't do well. The strategic partner crashed and burned and took us down mm-hmm. with. So then I started Propel Growth after that. Okay. With a lot of that. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> okay, excellent. And how do you come about starting proper growth? I had a lot of road rash from the second company that we co-founded. And so my partner and I split ways after that. And I had really built up a very strong network when mm -hmm. I was doing those because I was the commercial lead. My partner was the visionary from the technology side of it. And so because we were building something that was pretty cutting edge around electronic trading, I built a name for myself in mm -hmm. that industry. So when I started Propel Growth, I knew there were specific problems around marketing and selling these really sophisticated technologies and knew that I could help other companies overcome some of the same challenges we had overcome. And I was tired of software businesses. It's a hard way to make a living. And so consulting seemed like an easier route for me, a little bit more of a lifestyle business, mm -hmm. which I was ready for because we had gotten the tough route of software companies and we did not make it rich. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. And that's very interesting what you just said when comparing having a software business versus a consulting business, because maybe in the audience, they are, uh, yes, they are consultant, but I'm sure that some of the listeners that are thinking, oh, maybe I should open my own software business so that I have a kind of IT product to sell. So what were the toughest aspects for you with regards to having a software business? That's a great question. I mean, let's start with the benefits. With mm -hmm. software versus consulting, if you ultimately want to sell your business, the multiples that you can get for a software business are significantly higher than what you mm -hmm. can get for a consulting company. Anytime it's a services-oriented business, it's simply not as valuable and it's harder to sell. Mm -hmm. um, so the appeal of starting a software or product company is always there because of that perspective. And certainly the multiples that we were looking at when we got funded, we had an 11x multiple that they funded us on. So not a bad multiple. We had gotten it to a little over a million in revenue before we closed our first round. And it was hard. I will not pretend that closing VC was easy because it was insanely difficult. It took us 18 months to close in 2004. And, you know, I mean, at the point that we did close it, we didn't have an option of not taking the money because we had plenty of cash in the bank when we started the process. By the end of the process, it's such a distraction from your business. The process of seeking funding can take your business down. And that's yeah. a fact that not everybody knows, you know, so you've got to have a pretty solid business to get people to say yes to funding you. And I led the commercial side of the business. My partner, who's the technical genius, led the fundraising side of it. That created problems because I really needed him in driving some of the engineering decisions that we were making. And he was often mentally absent because he was so busy with the raise. Now, we also raised money at the worst possible time. It was right after the dot-com collapse. Mm -hmm. And so money was really hard to find then. And that goes in ebbs and flows. And so there are easier times to raise money. And there are some companies that have had a much easier time. For us, it was very difficult. The second time we raised money, it was crazy easy. I made a million dollar sale with no employees, no company, and no product. And the <laughs> client made a strategic decision and it was a million dollar deal. And I closed it without anything. So, you know, it depends on... Yeah. And we had some experience. We'd gone through the harder part. So we knew a little bit more about what we were doing the second time around. Unfortunately, that client, that company was having some problems and it ended up doing a fire sale, mm -hmm. owing us a lot of money. And so we had to close down the company, not because our product wasn't successful, but because a half million dollar invoice wasn't going to be paid. And wow. so I had eight employees at the time and had to lay them all off very abruptly, which was a real 
real bummer. Oh yeah, yeah. So with regards to uh, running the software business, so one of the biggest advantages, the possibility of having multiples. So when we say multiples, is multiples of your annual revenue. What yeah. So usually when somebody values your company to acquire it, they're looking at either your gross revenues or your EBITDA, the your net before taxes. And you know you might get on a lot of times they're they're really going to be focusing on net. It depends on the strategy of the acquiring company, whether they're looking at you as a growth opportunity and they see that hockey stick opportunity mm-hmm. there, then they're going to probably buy based on gross revenue and pay you a, a multiple on that. If they're looking at you as a net improvement on their P&L, then they might buy you based on EBITDA. But mm-hmm. either way, they take that and then they multiply it. So you might get 3x of revenue or 12x of revenue, for example. And that's a big difference in your number yeah. that you're going to get out of that. And a software business, because it has the ability to scale, you know, there's the ability to just grow incrementally where your costs are tracking with your revenue. And then there's the ability to scale where your yeah. revenue starts to significantly exceed your cost. Yeah. yeah, I would say like a linear versus exponential. Thank uh, you. That's the uh, word I was looking for. <laughs> so a services business is always going to be linear by definition. Yeah. Whereas a software business and especially SaaS technology can often remove itself from that linear growth. It's still going to be somewhat linear. You're never going to have flat costs and skyrocketing revenue, but it's not quite as connected. And so that's why you can get better multiples. And the less linear your growth potential, the higher multiple you can get. Yeah. So, okay, there is a huge growth potential, bigger growth potential in general with the software business rather than Mm -hmm. with the service business. You had very uh, good and also hard experiences having the software business. So is this what or part of what led you to go into, uh, you said, real estate and then Propel Growth? Yeah. So when I went to, when I launched Propel Growth, it was with the decision. I was tired with those two launches. So from 2000 until 2007, I was traveling almost 100%. I was working 16-hour days and people brag about that, but that's (laughs) exhausting. And I was very burned out. So I literally spent like a few months on a sofa, just staring at a wall in recovery from that. And for me personally, I made the decision that I wanted to focus more on a lifestyle business because we had these scalable companies. And for me, neither one of them resulted in a big payout. We made some money on the first one, and then I lost all of it on the second one. So, you know, it was like, for me, the upside didn't pay off the way that some people hope it will. Now, since then, I've worked with founders and have helped 13 other companies get acquired. And in my experience, I mean, each one of those founders did better than I did when they got their companies acquired. But in none of those cases, was it the rocket ship that they were suddenly gazillionaires? And the process of selling that company can be pretty painful. So I just made the decision that for me, it's not for me. That doesn't mean it's not for everybody. And I wouldn't discourage people from starting a software business because it does give you that scalable opportunity that isn't present in consulting. So it's not that you shouldn't try it. And especially for consultants that have a product idea that really solves a known need because they keep seeing it over and over again with clients, it can be an opportunity to build something that either stays small and supplements your consulting income, or it's something you can sell or something you can take big. But in any case, it it's, can be a real nice add-on to a consulting service. Yes. Yeah, indeed, indeed. 
that was thinking about that actually even in the ERP world some companies that see that have a customers that are specific to a solution or to an industry they might create some add-ons to the ERP they are consulting with for example and that's bingo uh, yeah it's like that's how most ISVs get started <laughs> exactly okay so uh, now you're more into a lifestyle business you were yeah. insane amount of hours traveling you said traveling 100% so basically you were not home <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. so how is your lifestyle right now and then we can talk about the business model of Purple Growth well let's say I don't have any status on any airlines anymore and I'm happy about that <laughs> <laughs> now when we travel it's because we want to my husband and I have this business together and you know we can take it on the road we can be digital nomads if we want to and we were really working now I'm going to talk about another pivot so let's talk pre-pivot pre-pivot we our goal was to work four hours a day four days a week we have not worked a Friday for two and a half years mm -hmm. and I really appreciate not working on Fridays and taking three-day weekends and we were steadily getting there now we went to shift away from our target audience so from 2007 until 2018 we focused our business on the same industry that I had come out of mm -hmm. and that's because we were doing marketing consulting and sales almost like sales enablement and sales support and sales strategy I did a lot of sales training in a business prior to those two software companies I had a sales training company mm -hmm. and I had trained about 1500 sales reps in solution selling so what we did was we took content marketing and merged it with solution selling and started to create content for our clients to help them both attract customers and move them through a very complex buying process um, mm -hmm. for a very complex set of solutions that are intangible and hard to explain. So that was kind of our focus. Kind of like ERP can be kind of intangible uh, and hard yes. to explain, right? Yes. It's Taking... a very niche skill that you have to be able to uh, simplify what's something very complex to understand and explain like ERP. I mean, uh, not everybody. So some people don't even know what is the acronym uh, of ERP and, and not everybody can see also the business value unless they have experienced a big issue with it. For most companies, I think they don't always necessarily see the, the added value of having an ERP. And every buyer persona, every per stakeholder has a different perspective of what mm -hmm. ERP is going to do for their business. I mean, yeah. the, the guys running supply chain and the guys running accounting do not speak the same language. No, no. And so you have to be able to talk to both of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we shifted away from electronic trading. And before I had a really strong network because of what we had done before. And so I didn't make outbound sales call for 10 years. Can you imagine no outbound selling for 10 years and the business was successful? And then all of it like hits this brick wall when we make a decision to change industries. Because now I have no network. I have no thought leadership that I can publish. I have no inbound flow, no referrals, nothing. So we have to like start over. And mm -hmm. I hate cold calling with a passion. But if we don't sell, we don't eat. You know, like most consulting practices, it's not just going to show up on your doorstep. And it's not like we have a job yeah. that pays us a salary. So we had to find something and we had to figure it out pretty quickly. And I had had some success on LinkedIn from an inbound perspective for a while mm -hmm. and started experimenting with the way that I could use LinkedIn for outbound to avoid cold calling. Yep. And I had looked at other stuff too. I was like thinking about hiring a salesperson, maybe somebody else could do the cold calling for me. But I also knew that if I couldn't make cold calling successful, it would be hard for me to teach someone else to do it and get the mm -hmm. message right. So I was 
experimenting with different LinkedIn lead generation techniques, came across some of the automation and some of the companies that outsource it, tried those out, did a ton of research on best practices for how to generate leads on LinkedIn and started using it, trying it out and very quickly found out that those best practices, they don't work. The things that the automation companies and the outsourcing providers tell you to do, do not work and they can really mess up your reputation very quickly. So I shifted away from that and started doing more human to human outreach on LinkedIn. And in six months by myself, I booked 125 sales calls. Yeah, that's amazing. But what you said also just before saying human to human interaction is very important. I'm pretty sure some of the listeners are on LinkedIn and also are receiving those DMs saying that, uh, yeah, well, I can do your lead generation. I can find you 500 leads in uh, one month or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You really have to be careful. So uh, that's very good that you mentioned that actually. I was just talking to somebody earlier today who hired one of those services. She was paying them $800 a month. They're a small ERP consulting. It's a husband and wife team. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 800 bucks a month is a lot of money for us as small businesses. But for her, the cost of the outcome from it was even higher than the cost she put into it. So the assumption is that with these companies that you can outsource this stuff to that are hitting us up all the time is that they can take a 20 year old from the Philippines and expect that person. Now, this lady has like 40 years of experience and they're going to just have a quick conversation with her and translate 40 years of experience into some quick messages on LinkedIn and expect that to work. They didn't get her target audience right. They didn't get her geography right. They're trying to set up meetings for her. She's in Arizona. They're trying to set up meetings in Denmark or, you know, like all over the place. And she's like, I can't serve clients there. I need to be on site. Um, and they're industries that are not relevant to her. They're people that are not relevant. So the meetings that she was getting, the connections she was getting weren't good, but also they totally messed up Sales Navigator for her. So she's got all this saved searches and network that isn't relevant to her that she's going and cleaning up. They've trained the algorithm. So LinkedIn is feeding her the wrong stuff. And it's just a mess. And, yeah. you know, it's like, I never even thought about that outcome from hiring these firms. I just look at the outcome of you spend a bunch of money and you get nothing for it. But I hadn't thought about the mess you have to clean up afterward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I receive uh, those type of DM a lot. Also, with regards to podcasting, uh, making a podcast promotion, and I will gain oh, thousands, yeah. thousands of followers in a few days. I'm like, wow, I-, I would like to, but I would like to do it organically. Well, they make these promises that sound so compelling. I mean, mm-hmm. who wouldn't want a steady stream of leads coming in and you don't have to do any effort? Yeah. But if that worked, there would be no need for salespeople. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So uh, coming back to uh, what you were you were saying about human to interaction, I think that I really like that uh, expression. So can you uh, yeah elaborate on that? So uh, you also mentioned a number of calls that you managed to get for your clients in the ERP uh, industry. Okay. So when I was doing the research for figuring this out, I talked to a lot of those companies that do that outsourcing because I was looking for solutions, you know, just like anybody else. I was like experimenting going, huh, maybe if I pay these guys $2,000, a month and I get a bunch of business coming in, it'll all work out, right? Um, So I talked to 12 different companies and even hired one of my clients wanted to do this too. And they hired one of those companies. So I was kind of managing what that company was doing at the same time of doing it myself. And this guy, the owner of that firm was teaching me how to do it because I brought the business to him. So it was like this kind of nice mutual thing. But like in six months, he was charging my client $3,000 a month. 
So they spent over the six months plus their setup fee, $21,000. They got five meetings and only three of them were meaningful meetings. They got a lot of connections, but they didn't get anything else. At the same time, I got 500 new connections all within my little target audience of commercial real estate technology, which is really hard to find. So somebody from, you know, some other country that's 20 years old that has no experience is not going to be able to detect what this role means from this role to figure out whether they're in commercial real estate tech. I got 355 of those people to engage with me via DM, um, direct message on LinkedIn. And 125 of them took a meeting with me at the same time that this other guy got five meetings. And I did it all organically. So it didn't cost me out of pocket. I spent about an hour to an hour and a half a day on LinkedIn to get that done. And those meetings were relevant, you know? And so then I'm also learning every time I have a meeting, I learn a little bit more about the industry. Then I have another meeting and another meeting. And then I started writing about those meetings. And now I'm getting content and I'm publishing thought leadership in the industry. Where do you publish that uh, content? In that case, there were three publications in the commercial real estate space that took articles from me. So I published two articles on the co-working industry and predicted WeWork's fall about a year and a half before it started to collapse. Okay. (laughs) Because I talked to 125 people. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You have insider information that tell you. uh, Right. I can put together trends because I've had so many conversations. So I had three different publications that accepted my articles because they had a unique perspective. Mm -hmm. It also, you know, it's like the more people you talk to, the more people want to talk to you. So it's like, I talked to one other person in the ERP space. I'd love to chat with you about what I heard from them and get your perspective. You might take that call. But if I say, I just had conversations with 20 consultants in the ERP space from different companies and have been putting together some ideas on, you know, some trends. I'd love to share it with you and get your take on this. You probably want to know, right? Yeah. You use the word trend. It's like, which trend? I would like to know more. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that can be a really, really powerful way to get those meetings and just I'm building on my knowledge, but I'm also generously sharing my knowledge. So people are thanking me for those conversations. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's pretty impressive because you're pretty new in that commercial real estate industry, but you're already publishing content on yep. spe- specialized magazines. And that's, uh, that's a great new. Yeah. yeah. And one of them paid me for an article. Wow. That's great. And also maybe for the audience, you know, we tend to do consulting in things in which we have a lot of experience, but there are ways to start in absolutely new industries or new areas. And uh, yeah, Candice is showing us uh, one way to do that. Yeah. You know, as consultants, we need to be publishing thought leadership. We need to be publishing on LinkedIn. We need to be publishing in the trade publications that our prospects read. I, I will just ask the kind of the opposite question, like why okay. do we need it and who absolutely need it? I don't know them necessarily personally, but I know some people are CEOs of some companies. They, I mean, publicly, I don't see any publication uh, from them. Yeah, but when you publish, mm-hmm. you establish yourself as a thought leader. And when you have that, that status builds credibility for you. You can raise your rates, you can get better projects and the referrals that come to you are more aligned with what you want to do if you're publishing thought leadership around the specific expertise of what you really enjoy doing. Yeah. To me, the last point is very, very important being in alignment because usually when you write about something, we kind of see the personality of the writer through it and some potential client or partners will recognize that, okay, this is that type of person that I want to work with. Uh, indeed, exactly. uh, I think that's a huge differentiator than if you're, uh, okay, if I take the example of uh, can be SAP, Microsoft Dynamics, okay, I know this module 
module, I have this uh, expertise, but you could be working in projects that you don't necessarily like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that picking a niche and then building your own credibility in that niche. I mean, you're doing it with the podcast. Mm-hmm. Your whole mm-hmm. focus of building yourself up as a thought leader by publishing content. And when I say publishing, I know you know this, but for everybody listening, it doesn't mean that it has to be written content. A podcast, a video, written content, you can be publishing on Instagram, you can be building your presence on TikTok. It's not about the medium. It's about where are your prospects paying attention? And so it's about being findable and discoverable by your ideal customer. So if you did work, you know, consulting projects for a couple of companies that were like super, super fun projects, go look at them and figure out what made them fun. Was it the team? Was it the work? Was it a particular challenge that you were working on that was like super interesting to you? And then start writing about that because that attracts other people with similar problems. Yes. yes, Writing uh, or publishing. I'm a writer, so I tend to default to writing, but some people are great on video. (laughs) Yeah. But you also talk uh, very well, honestly. So (laughs) So with proper growth, so as you said, you kind of discovered LinkedIn, another way of doing a lead generation. Which services proper growth offer to their uh, clients? So in 2020 with COVID, we had to make a massive pivot with our business because our clients were really struggling retaining their clients. And so, you know, it all falls downhill, right? And they needed to cancel client contracts with us. And we're not jerks, you know, it's like, I get it. They've got to cut costs. So we let them out of retainers early in many cases. And some just, they had a 90 day cancellation clause. They took it. And so we end up, you know, by May of 2020 going, oh crap, (laughs) you know? And I had done a webinar in 2019 about how I used LinkedIn to get those 125 sales calls. And I had no plan for this. It's just somebody asked me to do a webinar on it. And I'm like, okay, because I think this is really cool. You know, let me teach other people how to do it. And like 500 people came to that webinar. And that's been up. It's still up on the internet. And somebody found it in 2019. This guy, Mike's wife is a marketing consultant, a competitor to us. She said, oh, you should take a look at this. I think it would really be good for your salespeople. Mike is ahead of sales. Mm -hmm. Mike had that tab open for a year on his Chrome, you know, Chrome tab. And Mm -hmm. he finally, he didn't watch it. He asked one of his sales managers to watch it. And his sales manager was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so he reached out to me on LinkedIn and I'm like, hey, you want to chat? That was like May or June of 2020. And Mm -hmm. um, by September, they engaged me to train 17 salespeople in how I did that. They increased their booked meeting ratios by 50%. And that was in the senior living community space, which I wouldn't have thought those people would be on LinkedIn, but they are. Mm -hmm. So then Acumatica heard about this and we'd been doing some consulting with Acumatica clients. Acumatica, I think everybody knows is probably on this podcast is an ERP publisher. And so they asked us to train their resellers. Of course, they wanted us to do it for free. So (laughs) my husband, Phil and I are like, okay, what are we going to do to actually make some money off of this? And so we built a course and we did a one hour webinar. And then off of that, we sold the course and about 30 of those people signed 
signed up for our initial launch. And we launched a sales prospecting on LinkedIn course at the beginning of 2021. Then in July, we added to it with a 90-day prospecting accelerator. So people can take our course and if they want to go deeper, they can join an accelerator. Most of the people, about 60% of the people who have gone through our 90-day accelerators are from the ERP industry. And those who aren't, many are in the consulting space. And what we're finding is that by the end of the accelerator, they're successfully booking meetings with about 54 to 56% of the people they approach. So it's a huge ratio. It's insane. So I did the math and I track. So I keep score during these accelerators, which is why I know my numbers really well. They get around an 80 to 90% connection acceptance rate. Mm -hmm. Then they're looking to engage those people in DMs and their engagement rates are usually above 50-60%. And then the people they engage, they invite to meet with them. And that's around 54 to 56% say yes. The no-show rate is really, really low. It's usually below 10%, generally below 5% even of no-shows. And then the conversion ratio on the meeting to qualified opportunity has steadily stayed above 50%. So I, I netted it out for one of the groups. I need to do this for all of our cohorts. But for the first group that went through it, the net of it was for every 100 connection requests they sent to cold leads on LinkedIn. They booked 34 meetings and converted 17 into qualified sales opportunities in their pipeline. That's great. We are talking about an industry that are difficult, where it is very difficult to just have a meeting, just have an answer. So that is great, honestly. I mean, cold calling, you're never going to touch that cold emailing, you'll never come close. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's what I mean about the human to human. You have to make these communications one-to-one with every individual person. You can't program this. It's not cut and paste. It's got to be a unique message to every individual person. And that takes, there's a learning curve to that. Yes. Yes. And I agree. Even in the way you were to me was definitely personalized. And I kind of appreciated that. And because in your roles, you have had roles in sales, you create content since a year still create content today so in proper growth are you like more the person that is doing the business development and creating content while your co-founder your husband is more operations pretty much yeah mm-hmm. um so i'm fortunate to be married to a creative so mm-hmm. i build the content and he makes it super professional and beautiful and then he's also technically minded so we work together on it but we built like the whole we use kajabi as our learning management system. So I'll build out the initial content and then he'll go in and refine it and optimize it and make it beautiful. And then he's also publishing content as well and building on that. But there's a lot of back-end operational stuff that has to be done with all the videos and things. He's a video editor, voiceover guy. So yeah, and a musician. So I've got this really multi-talented <laughs> power behind the scenes doing all this stuff. I keep gesturing because his office is back there. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> oh, but that's, that's good. That's a very complimentary team that you see and so you predicted if i can say it like that like predicted that we work would fall for example in commercial real estate do you see other um, trends and uh, maybe my question is a bit too wide but with regards to now uh, what the pandemic has done there is a lot of uh, uh, work that had to be done on site and now can be done remotely how do you see b2b consulting being uh, executed in the future so i'm going to be specific for a moment yep. to erp implementations because i've spent a lot of time yep. thinking about that in the last year. What I'm hearing is 
where clients used to always want their ERP consultant to be on site to do the implementations. They are now less interested in that. It's no longer a priority. And so they're opening up the boundaries of where they will look for expertise in helping them with an ERP consultant implementation or refinement because they realize that it can indeed be done remotely. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I have heard from heads of sales is that prospects, now this is more broad than just ERP, are more reluctant to have a salesperson get on an airplane, go through airports, potentially pick up COVID and meet their team in a conference room. Mm-hmm. And so they're more interested in remote sales calls. It's less time consuming for the seller, but it's also less time consuming for the buyer because they don't have to book a room. They don't all have to be in person. They can just book a meeting on Zoom. And so it's time efficient for the buyer as well as the seller to do more remote meeting. So I think that trend will persist. We'll get a little bit more. I mean, even I'm trying to book coffee meetings in person, but I'm not jumping on an airplane to go meet clients. But frankly, I wasn't pre-COVID either because I got Mm -hmm. really tired of traveling after the 100% on the road thing. And I am proof that you can build a consulting practice and have successful relationships with clients, seeing them only once or twice. Like I had a seven year relationship with a client and I haven't been working with them for a couple of years, but she just texted me today to stay in touch. I've met them in person three times over the last nine years. So you can be successful. I made a ton of money from that client. We had a really strong relationship. Another client in the UK, I met the CEO. I was introduced to him at an event. We sat down. We A bunch of us went to a bar after the conference and hung out. I had like an hour and a half conversation where this guy was picking my brain, a big consulting company in London, $30 million consulting company. He's picking my brain. And then he hired me and I have never met any of the people in person. And we brought in about a quarter of a million dollars from that account, met him once. So as consultants, we do not have to be on site. And even them, they tended to put teams on site because they're doing big projects. And this is back in my old life in financial technology consulting. They were putting people on site to build big financial technology solutions. And even they have found that they don't need to put their people on site like they used to. Yes, I agree. That's great. Uh, That's trends that really we need to take into account. So uh, being more effective and more clear when you're working remotely with your prospects or with your clients, both in the pre-sales phase, but also when you do the implementation in the case, if you're an ERP consultant, you also have to be more efficient remotely. And I agree. Uh, So the past, uh, since the pandemic started now, yeah, the project that typically in which uh, I would have to go to be on site from uh, Monday until Thursdays and keep working on Friday from home. Now it's from Monday until Friday from home. And there are some meetings or some events in which I need to go to the site, but you're mostly working from home indeed. That was nice, uh, that's much nicer. I think it's much nicer for everybody indeed. Yeah. I think it's great. We uh, talk about a lot of different aspects and I can see you have had many, many, many hats <laughs> in the B2B world. So for you, uh, Candice, what does having a consulting lifestyle mean? It means being able to call your own shots. And I think that the better you get at niching and becoming the go-to resource in a particular niche, the more ability you get to call your own shots and a little bit more self-determination in terms of the rate you charge, the hours you work, where you work.
were from, you know, like, I don't think I'm employable anymore. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's difficult for you to get orders as to as all the aspects that you just uh, mentioned. So the salary, the location, etc, etc. And I've been advising CEOs for the last 15 years. And so if I took a job, like I would instantly lose the credibility that I have in telling CEOs what to do. And it's not going to go well for me when I try to tell my boss what to do if I get a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. indeed. Okay, so I, I believe uh, Candice, we really, uh, really a great uh, interview. So for the audience, if the audience wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you? LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm easy to find Candice with a Y, Edelin, and I'm sure that's going to be in the show notes. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can also check out, I've got like some free events and stuff like that on my website at propelgrowth.com. And there's a free newsletter there if you want to get some tips on how to use LinkedIn to build your consulting practice. I mean, that's almost all of our clients are in some form of consulting and they've had tremendous success on LinkedIn. I am convinced that for the independent or the small team consultants, this is like LinkedIn is the best place to do business development. It's the easiest place to do business development. Mm -hmm. That's a great uh, wise words and also words which I am in agreement. So thank you very much, Candice. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Looking forward to have another discussion with you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Consulting Lifestyle Podcast. Leave a review on iTunes if you have enjoyed the episode and subscribe to the podcast so that you get notified to hear other episodes with your host, Diogène Tirandecourat.